We're reading from the Gospel of Matthew, the 15th chapter, the 21st verse. I'm going to give a lot of explanation after our reading, but I would encourage you to pay attention to where we are. We're in chapter 15, verse 21. Why? Because I'm going to encourage you to maybe later today go home and read a larger portion. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David! My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That's one of those repetitions that is said often in the church. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. But the idea that this is the word of the Lord ushers in all manner of questions. A question about faith. If we're just, if we have enough faith, if our faith is great enough, then, then a change will happen, won't it? Is that what this is teaching? And then the corollary that if something doesn't happen, maybe our faith wasn't great enough? Or what do we do about the idea that Was Jesus really not going to help her? Or did Jesus really just call her a dog? I mean, on the top ten lists of passages we might share to an unbeliever, someone who hasn't heard, would we put that in the top ten list? Let's admit it, that it's a passage that can kind of be difficult for us, a passage that we trust all the other passages are great and wonderful, but this one we kind of read over because it catches us. It's got some items in there that are difficult for us to take in and understand. We want to give Jesus the benefit of the doubt, but it's kind of hard. So I'm going to ask something of you this morning. 
I'm going to ask that you do something and then I'll do something. I'm going to ask you to try and stick with me because I'm going to broaden the passage. And my part is that if you start to wander off because I've lost you at some point, if you start to look at the windows and start to think about the different stories in the windows or you start counting the lights, I will do my best part to give you an on-ramp to come back in at some point. Fair? Okay. Part of the struggle with this passage is that it's part of a bigger picture. I remember uh, World Magazine as a child. Uh, on the back of World Magazine, they would often have a, a series of pictures that said, what is this? And, and, and you couldn't make out what it was, what animal, because they were so focused in on a particular part that you, the, the fun was trying to guess, well, what is it? But you were looking at only a small part of it. My wife sometimes plays that game with us too. She'll give us a picture of just someone's eye and we're supposed to figure out who in the family or even the extended family, who it is. It's really hard. Or I'll put it to you this way, differently. Um, this passage is more like, and you've seen this before, um, the, it's an incredible art. I'm, I'm amazed by it every time I see it. But um, when someone takes the ability of a whole host of pictures... Maybe it's pictures from the whole year of your family and puts it together in a collage in such a way that all those pictures make a bigger picture. You've seen that before, right? You'll, you'll see a, someone's face or an image and it's pretty powerful, but then when you look in closer, you realize it's a whole bunch of, of pictures that have been put together to make a bigger picture. Have you seen that? Please tell me you're, I'm not nuts, right? I just need a little acknowledgement. Okay, good. You're with me. That's... That's the way this is. This passage is part of a bigger picture. And it's depending on us to see all those other pictures so that we can see the greater image. That's how this passage begins to make sense because it's supporting a larger image. And that larger image is speaking to two central issues, an issue about faith and an issue about the heart. And then because it's artistry and the gospel writers were very creative and clever, it also has a few other things like it plays with the image of bread as well. But it's about faith and it's about the heart. Now, to give you even more background to kind of prepare and help us understand what we just read, I, I want to give you and remind you of some of the tools that we've talked about before. I said just even the other week that they didn't have highlighters to highlight things for them. They didn't, couldn't write in italics or speak in italics or bold such that people could hear. They used different linguistic or ways of telling things that allowed people to see what was highlighted. They used what we called parallelism, where they started with an idea A and they finished with the idea A. And after the first idea A, they moved to idea B and they finished just second before the end of, with B and C and C. And so. so then you get an idea in the middle that was highlighted. Now the other things were important. They're still pictures, but they were highlighting. 
Such is the case here. This passage comes as part of a bigger picture. A bigger picture in which the beginning and more or less the end are all to do with the feeding. Remember the feeding of the 5,000? With five loaves and two fish? Well, Matthew and Mark also have not only the feeding of the 5,000, they have the feeding of the 4,000 with seven loaves. And I can't remember how many fish. So you have these two feedings of 5,000 and 4,000, and they become almost like bookends, and things kind of move from there within to highlight a point, of which ours plays a part, our passage plays a part in that larger picture, kind of like we think of ourselves here on the earth, and we may even, if you've ever seen this before, um, a New Yorker's view of the world, it shows New York City, and then just the rest of the United States is kind of plains, and then it goes on. Sometimes we think of our world only from where we are. We think of ourselves as the earth, but we're the third rock in the, from the sun, right? The great debate about whether there's eight or nine planets, but, you know, we're somewhere in there. This passage is in this larger bookend, feeding of 5,000, feeding of 4,000, and then right inside of those bookends are two passages about faith. Two passages about faith, one of which you've probably figured out is ours. The first passage is the one we read last week where the disciples are out on the water and they can't make progress and it's between three and six in the morning and Jesus comes walking out to them. And then Peter says, can I come out too? Can I do it too? Tell me to come. And Jesus goes to walk out and he makes it a little ways and then he sinks. And what does Jesus say? Oh, you of little faith, as he reaches out and grabs him. This passage, on the other end, more towards the feeding of the 4,000, this passage, just inside of that, this passage has this woman, and instead of speaking, oh, you of little faith, she, Jesus says, great is your faith. You follow? Now, let's just take a moment to talk about faith for a moment. Um, at camp, we used to use uh, an illustration to help uh, the young children understand what faith is. Uh, we, we recognize and we all understand, but sometimes it's difficult to grasp that there's a difference between belief and faith. I can believe, I can believe that an airplane will take me across the sky and that I'll fly to my next destination. I can believe that. You can believe that. But it takes faith to get on that plane. 
Faith is taking your belief and putting it into action. Faith is an act of trust. We used to, with kids at camp, we used to do this thing called the trust fall. Some of you know what that is. Uh, you take an individual and you have them uh, get up and stand, maybe like, let's say, on a picnic table, and then they turn around and, and you teach them how to lock their hands, fold them up, and then you tell them, go ahead, fall backwards. And you have everybody else, all the other kids, waiting for the person with their arms out, and they're supposed to catch the individual that falls. You ever seen this before? Well, here's the reason we, you know, when people do that, when they, they can't look back, they've got to fall backwards. Most of us have trouble with that. Now, you might have eight people there who are going to catch you. And you know, and you've seen it even happen, that they catch, nobody falls, everybody gets caught. You may know that, but any of us who are up there, when we go to fall, we do a thing. We start to go, and you're supposed to fall kind of like a log. But the first thing we do is we start to do this. You know? And that's a guarantee way to fall through because, you know, one person's trying to catch all of you. You're supposed to fall like a log, so everybody equally has you. And so the other problem, not only do people start to do this, but they put their arms out to catch themselves. So we teach them how to put their hands together, lock them together, so it makes it become much harder to let go so you don't smack the people that are trying to catch you. Right? Even so, the trust fall is an incredibly difficult lesson for anybody who's gone through it because it's an exercise in faith. Now, there are so many things that we hold and faithfully do. Today, you came into your pew, you sat down, you didn't think twice about whether it would hold you or not. We didn't ask Jerry to go and unloosen all the bolts in one of the pews just to set an example today of, you know, what wouldn't work. Because there are so many things we have faith in. We just take it for granted. Faith is an exercise in trusting often when we don't believe it'll work. Faith is also the word we use to express our overall belief system. Not only is it about an individual act, but it's also about our overall belief system. By the way, I'm just giving you that in case any of you have drifted off the, on, the off-ramp. I want you to come back on. Faith is also a belief system. And part of what Jesus is getting at here is greater than simply whether the Canaanite woman had great faith, but it's also part of an overall belief system and how we understand our belief system. Now I'm going to get to the heart. Remember earlier I talked about it being that within this greater picture are of our faith and our heart, and that heart has a lot to say about our faith. So as we had the feedings of the 5,000 and the 4,000, and have we have inside those are two stories about faith, one in which Peter sinks like a rock and is OU of little faith. And we have our passage today with his great is your faith. Inside of that, we have an interaction with the Pharisees. Now, this is why I said, please take that note of this being 
from Matthew chapter 15 because I'd like you to go home and I'd like you to read from the first feeding, which is really in chapter 14, to the last feeding and maybe a little beyond and see what's happening here. Anytime inside here is this interaction with the Pharisees and really is probably the highlighted point. There's this interaction with the Pharisees and the Pharisees meet Jesus and they say, you know, how come, it, it, how come you don't instruct your disciples to wash their hands before they eat? Now, this gets back to their cleanliness laws and so forth. It's more than what we say to our children, wash your hands before you eat. This has to do with their law and keeping the law and being faithful and righteous before God. Jesus is being challenged, but the Pharisees are being used by Matthew and before him by Mark, because Matthew is following Mark very almost word for word or story for story here, being used to lift up a central issue about our larger faith. About the faith, how we live and how we believe. You with me still? The Pharisees are asking a question about the law. And Jesus turns back on them and says, Look, you yourselves don't follow the law. You abuse the law. And he gets into an issue about how we're supposed to honor our father and mother, but they found a way around that. Now you might say, why? And so I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty. But what Jesus is doing is he's pointing out the hypocrisy in the Pharisees about following the rules, but missing the heart of the matter. We have all been guilty of doing that, that we can do what's right technically, but we're missing the heart of the matter. Jesus expands on that and explains, look, anything that you take into you eventually comes out of you. He says, you know, hey, you, you eat it, it goes through the stomach, and then it's expelled. Fortunately, he doesn't get too much more graphic than that. But he says real defilement isn't what comes in that way. Real defilement is what comes out of the heart where our heart is. That's the real issue. Where's our heart? If our heart is in the wrong place, our faith, no matter how many ways we're following it and living out what we believe, is empty. Our faith is empty. So, I need to explain one other piece to you. I've given you the bookends of the feeding of 5,000 and the 4,000, another on-ramp, by the way, here. Here's the next piece I need to teach you. We tend to learn linearly. We tend to learn, you learn item A, then item B, then item C, then item D. In the time of Jesus, much of the learning took place experientially. 
It wasn't just book learning or memorizing the law. A rabbi, the students would follow the rabbi, and the rabbi would actually take them on journeys in different directions and teach them by going a certain route. Mark and our gospel writer Matthew today use the same methodology. They're not only using bookends, but they're trying to walk us through a journey. And they're going to test us through Jesus as Jesus tests his disciples. Have you caught on to what I've just told you? It's about your heart. It's not about the rules. It's about understanding the heart behind the rules. Okay? That's what brings us to our passage that we just read. Because after he has this confrontation with the Pharisees, and he explains that they just don't get it, and he explains to the disciples, look, it's not about what you put in your mouth and what eventually is expelled. That's not defilement. Defilement's what comes out of your heart. Greed, stealing, sexual immorality, all that. It's what comes out of your heart. He now takes them outside of their region. He takes them outside of Israel. He takes them over to a place called Tyre and Sidon. And we don't know this, just reading it. We just read it as other names. But anybody in this time knew immediately that they had just left their known world. They'd gone into the world of non-Jews, Gentiles. And there's a whole bunch of cultural baggage in that statement. Because the Jews were the ones who hold the promises of God. And they weren't supposed to really interact with the Gentiles. And how they did was all sorts of rules. And they've just left and gone into their region. Now, there are all sorts of allusions that Matthew hopes that the reader will draw to mind. A remembrance that Elijah the prophet long ago in 1 Kings 17 also went out when he was fleeing Ahab. And there he is out, and he deals with a widow and an only child, and they don't have any food left, and Elijah wants to be fed, and she says, well, I can, but this is the last little bit of, you know, uh, flour and oil, and then we're going to die. And he says, well, feed me first, and the bread and the oil won't run out. And sure enough, the bread and oil don't run out during the whole famine. But then even in that story, eventually, the, the son, the, the child, appears to have died, and the widow struggles greatly. What have you done to me? You've saved us, but now he's died. And Elijah goes and prays over the boy, and the, the child lives. So we're supposed to recall that story as we walk into this region because it's the same region. And now we're met with a Canaanite woman who comes out because her daughter is on the point of incredible sorrow, deeply oppressed by a demon. The other piece that we're supposed to take in is that 
she's being listed by Matthew as a Canaanite. What Matthew does is Matthew cleans up a lot of the gospel of Mark, tries to make sure we understand what Mark was saying. But he fills in the word Canaanite instead of what Mark used as a Syrophoenician woman. And I know by this point, many of you just said, oh my goodness, we just went into Bible for nerds. Here's where I'm going. When Matthew uses the word Canaanite, he's trying to remind us that there were other women who were outside the fold who were brought in the fold. Namely, Tamar and Rahab. Tamar was outside the fold and had to play kind of a prostitute role with her father-in-law to keep the line going. Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho, the city that the Israelites were about to knock down, and she's the one who let the spies in. She's the one who took care of them, and she was allowed to survive with her family because of that. Both Tamar and Rahab are part of the line of David, the line of Jesus. You may remember that Matthew starts his gospel out very boring. I just saw one yawn. That's the way Matthew's gospel begins, with a big yawn, going through this long genealogy within this, all this men, you know, so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, was the father of so-and-so, was the father of so-and-so, on and on it goes. But there are four women that show up, and Tamar and Rahab are in there, together with Ruth, who was an outsider, together with Bathsheba, but she's not listed by her name. She's listed by her husband's name, the wife of Uriah, who was also an outsider. Matthew is sending a message about the outsider. And it's a message that asks, what happens to the outsider? What happens to the one who's not faithfully in following God? What happens to that one? So a Canaanite woman comes out to Jesus as he's going away. It seems to almost hide again to get away to pray. He tried to do that both times with the crowds and the feedings, and he's trying to get away. And, and so this time he's trying to go to a different region. And she comes out to him, and she says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, for my daughter is severely afflicted by a demon, son of David. She knows who he is. He is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one sent by God. Have mercy on me. And what does he do? He doesn't answer her. Nowhere do we get it being stated definitively that he doesn't answer. Oh, we may read in the narrative like another time where the blind man's calling out and begging and yelling from the side of the road and, and the crowd's still moving. We might read that at first it seems like Jesus doesn't hear or whatever, we don't, but we never get in the narrative simply that he didn't answer her. Could it be he's about to teach? 
He doesn't answer her. So the disciples infer, no doubt, because there's no answering and this pestering is going on. Hey, you know, Lord, send her away. They, they figure out they, they've, they're on the right side of the equation. You know, is Jesus going to do something with her? Well, he's not answering her. Send her away, oh Lord. You know, she's, she's a nuisance. And then he says that he only came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's true. He was sent to his own people to help change them, to help them see how lost they themselves were. The promised people, the people that were to carry the promises of God, the ones who were tasked to be a blessing to the rest of the world, they themselves are lost in their understanding. And that's why he's been sent. He's been sent to them to help reshape and reform, to help them see. And so he says outright, I was only sent for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Is there a test going on here? You know, the problem with faith is that we often have to overcome obstacles. The problem with our faith is that when we're asked to exercise it, we have to overcome some kind of obstacle, some kind of barrier. The trust fall is not doing this or throwing your arms out. All the things that could get in the way of someone catching you. The problem with faith is there's often an obstacle. And this woman has been presented an enormous obstacle. The very one she is begging mercy of is saying, you know, I'm, I'm not here for you. And so she comes to him. She's no longer shouting out. She comes to him. She falls on her knees and she shortens everything that she said before. You know, she said before, oh, you know, oh, you know, have mercy on me, oh Lord, son of David, for my daughter. She, she cuts right to the chase. She falls on her knees and she says, Lord, help me. Help me. And you know what he says? It is not right. It is not right. Do you hear this? It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She's outside the fold. Yes, there's scholarly discussion about many times Gentiles were referred to as dogs. Not dogs like you and I think about household pets, but dogs that kind of wandered and scavenged that weren't part of anybody. It's not right to take the children's bread, the gift of God, and throw it to the dogs. I want you to remember what we just heard with the Pharisees. It's about the heart of the law. And you can almost see him almost with a kind of an impish grin as he says this. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she catches it and she says, yes, but even the dogs under the table 
get in Matthew, it's the scraps. Excuse me, in Mark, it's the scraps, but in Matthew, it's the crumbs, the bread imagery. And it's at that point. The disciples who had missed it and said, send her away, it is that point he's able to turn to her and say, great is your faith. You get it. It's not just the persistence. I entitled this thing Persistence Faith. It's not just the persistence of constantly coming after Jesus and Jesus finally relents. That if we constantly come after God, God will relent. Oh, God tells us that we continue on, but that doesn't mean we can force God's hand. No, it's that she gets it. She understands that the greater movement is for everyone. She understands that the mercies of God have come for all who call upon it. Everyone. And the comparison is powerful. Peter, who was walking on the waters but started to look at the world around him, the wind and the movement of the waves, started to sink again. When confronted with the barriers as he's exercising his faith, the barriers of the life and the obstacles of the world, he starts to sink. But this woman overcomes the very barriers that Jesus puts in her place and says, no, the truth is about that the very mercies of God are for all. And he says, great is your faith. Great is your faith. As we gather here today, we gather here in faith, in a belief system, an understanding of who God is, but we need to remember in our hearts that our God has sent his son Jesus, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. And he has sent his son out of the incredible love that he has for us, that we, if we have faith, that he's done this, might be freed and released. That very moment, her daughter was healed. It is about what God has done for us. Our faith, our persistent faith, is depending on the very one that was claimed long time ago to have the steadfast love of the Lord that endures forever, that God's love does not end, that there is no depth to which we can go, that God will suddenly turn away from us, that if we but turn to God, even the crumbs are for the dogs. That God's grace, his mercy, extends to us. In our brokenness, in our struggles. If you're sitting here this, having had a hard week or wrestling with something that you just can't seem to throw off and it feels like an ever-present sin, know that turning to Jesus again is for you. If you're sitting here thinking that, well, if people knew who I really was or what I did long ago, they'd think of me differently. Know that Jesus thinks of you the same. He loves you, and he's come for you.
Interestingly, the passage goes on after this one, the feeding of the 4,000, and after that comes kind of the, the test or the quiz for the disciples to see if they got it. Did they understand? Did they take in what's just happened, that it's about the heart and understanding that the rules were about the heart, not to, to enclose the heart? That it was about faith, trusting in God. And so the quiz comes, and, and the question, they're struggling because the Pharisees say, hey, show us a sign. Show us that you're who you really are. <laughs> and Jesus says, you know, you all, you, you look at the sky in the evening, you see it's red, you, you, you know it's going to be a good day tomorrow. You look at the sky in the morning, you see it's red, you know it's going to be a bad day. It's, you know, red sky at night, sailors delight, red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. It's the ancient version of that. He says, you can see the signs, you know what's going to happen, and yet you can't see Despite all that I'm doing, you seem to not be able to see what I'm showing you. That's not, you don't make it to God through the rules and the regulations. You make it to God through your heart, having complete faith and trust in him. And now it's the disciples' turn. The disciples get there and they say, we don't have any bread. And Jesus says, oh my goodness. Are you kidding me? You don't have any bread? Did I not just feed 5,000? Did I not just feed 4,000? You got to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they're like, I, I, don't, I don't understand. The leaven of the Pharisees? And then they start to get it. Playing with this bread imagery. It's not about whether or not you have leaven to make bread. It's about don't get caught up in the leavening that the Pharisees are living in that is Pharisaical in any of us, living by the rules and all that stuff. Don't get caught in that. Get caught in having a heart that puts its full faith in Jesus Christ. I'll leave you with one last way this all ties together. Remember I said Matthew starts his gospel with the most boring opening ever with this genealogy? He doesn't go all the way back to the beginning with Adam. He goes back to Abraham and David. Abraham, the father of faith, and David, the one who had a heart after God. And he shows us that even the outsiders are enfolded in and become part of the line of Jesus. Our passage is sitting like a moon that has tremendous reflection of the great light of Jesus Christ upon the earth. Our passage sits as a reflection and a test point. Are we getting it? To have great faith is to trust in God. that he sent Jesus Christ for us. And even though he had a very specific mission, that that grace extends to all who call upon him so that, that we might live together in Jesus Christ and not in ourselves. It is a persistent faith. Let us pray.
Almighty God, we have taken in so much. It's hard to make sure we even understand it all. But may your spirit continue to guide us. May we chew upon your word. May we find that it is sweet and whole. Guide us, O Lord, that we may serve you, that we might live in faith, a greater faith of our whole belief in you, but all the more in each challenge that we are given, that we might trust in you, that you have done it all, that you have saved us through your Son, Jesus Christ, and have given us new life eternal with you, all through him and to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you this day and forevermore. Amen and amen.